Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. And welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks on today's show, we are pleased to have back with us for a second time, Chris Edwards. Hey, Ron, how's it going? Great, Ed. We got our we got my tax guru here, so I'm thrilled. Yeah, no, and it's well pseudo tax day. I mean, it you know usually is the 15th, but for whatever reason, extended out to the 18th this year. Uh, I don't even pay attention. All I know is that I did file this morning, so oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm done. That's good. I'm done for the done for the year. So that went well. Let me quick uh, read Chris's bio. Get him in here. We can join the conversation. Chris is the director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute, editor of DownsizingGovernment.org. He is a top expert on federal and state and taxes and budget issues. Before joining Cato, uh, he was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, a manager with Price Waterhouse Coopers, and an economist with the Tax Foundation. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Waterloo and a master's in economics from George Mason University. He's also a member of the Fiscal Future Commission of the National Academy of Sciences. Welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Chris Edwards. Thanks a lot, Ed and Ron. Uh, it's fun to be here. Well, I got to ask you this. We didn't talk about it last time. What did you do at PricewaterhouseCoopers? You didn't prep returns, did you? <laughs> no, I was in their national uh, tax office dealing mainly with corporate returns. So basically, we defended big corporations against the IRS. Uh, with, with econ- I'm an economist. So we did economic studies, essentially defending the multinationals or at least presenting their point of view with solid statistical data sort of against Congress and the IRS. Good. Well, that, we appreciate that. And that's a perfect re- lead-in for our show. But before we talk to you about tax policy, you have been really prolific lately on, on Cato. You got, I mean, get, getting a lot of stuff out. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that uh, Ron and I like to uh, say. We, we, we stole this line from Jonah Goldberg, bang our, bang our, high, uh, our uh, spoon against our high chair about. And that is uh, Thomas Piketty's erroneous data. Um, and you, you've published a lot on this, including... Uh, a larger study that I uh, that called exploring wealth inequality with uh, Ryan Bourne. But I wanted to ask you: There's something more recent happened uh, with regard to something published in the New York Times that inspired you. They continue to pu- publish this just wrong, blatant data about this. So talk a little bit about it. Well, Piketty now for almost uh, 20 years, he's a well-known French economist, as uh, a lot of your listeners know. He's been publishing this data, purporting to show that the uh, the top 1% share of income and wealth in America has just skyrocketed. So the rich are getting massively richer at the expense of everyone else. And I think for a decade or so before uh, he was publishing this data, and there's really no official data uh, on this. So he was, all the news sources, New York Times and everyone would constantly republish his data. Finally, some serious academic economists started looking at his stuff within the last five or 10 years and found all kinds of holes in his data. Just really, really quickly, I mean, his 
uh, we don't have the, he, he publishes data on income distribution, you know, how much of the total income each of the groups, income groups get. But we don't have good information on that in the United States. We have tax return data, but tax returns actually only capture about 60% of all the income uh, that Americans earn. And we only have that data for recent decades mainly. If you go back more than a few decades, tax laws have changed so much that what was income on a tax return you know, back in the 50s is entirely different than what it on tax returns today. Uh, and, and then finally, you know, he publishes the, the similar data on wealth showing that the top 1% wealth share skyrocketed. Well, there's no official data uh, on wealth distribution up until about three years ago, the Federal Reserve finally started publishing some stuff. But again, we don't really have, I mean, the US government never historically collected data on wealth and wealth distribution. All it had was tax return data. So Piketty would extrapolate from this really faulty tax return data to try to figure out what everyone's wealth was, you know, in 1950, 1940, and 1900. So there was huge holes in his data. And as a quite a far leftist, all the assumptions he made with this data pushed the results in his direction, you know, to, sh to show that there's this huge crisis in society. But now more serious economists have looked at it and found huge flaws in his data. Including one that I think you mentioned in, in the piece where he uses the, the Forbes list from 1987 um, and then uh, then tracks it down. And, but then he just simply ignores all the people who fell off the list. <laughs> That's right. He's, he, a number of times, he's, he'll, you know, since 1982, Forbes magazine has been publishing a list of the 400 Americans with um, the, the highest wealth. Well, uh, you know, Piketty... It seems to have basically just looked at that list and then calculated how much the total wealth of the top 400 increases over time. And he concludes, oh, well, the wealth are doing it, that the wealthy are doing extremely well. Their income is multiplying or their wealth is multiplying really rapidly. But he ignores all the people that have dropped off the, four, the top 400 list. So there's only about 60 people today left of the original 400 in the 1980s. And so he completely discounts the, the, the business people that have gone bankrupt, they've lost their businesses, they've made bad investments. And there's, and there's many of them, many wealthy people make really bad investment decisions and they lose their wealth. So Piketty ignores those and just claims that the rich are getting richer. And once you're, once you're rich, you're gonna be rich forever. Well, that really isn't true if you look at the data. And I think I, I remember reading in, in one of uh, Nicholas Nassim Tal uh, Taleb's books that the, the, the rich people in Italy are still rich and they have been for like 450 years. That, they, that hasn't changed. He's done some studies of, of that and the, the, the wealthy over in Europe continue to be the wealthy in Europe. Look at the queen. Right. So, there, you know, there's two ways you can get wealthy. You can get wealthy in the market and wealth earned in the market is very dynamic. Like in America, I mean, 70 percent of the top the Forbes top 400 have self-made wealth. Only a small, smaller fraction is, uh, you know, intergenerational wealth, uh, uh, you know, heirs. Uh, in a lot of other countries, they have a lot more cronyism and insider sort of advantages. And in those countries, it's, it's easier for families to retain, you know, wealth, you know, decade after decade. Uh, but that's really not true of America. And it's not true of market economies where wealth is very dynamic. And the last thing that you, I want to talk to you about that you point out in this piece, which I just thought was just beautiful, was the Tax Foundation, William McBride, uh, where he says, okay, well, let's just assume, let me see if I get this right, let's just assume that the people who fell off, fell off, but are really like 401. They're like right, right underneath there, right? Um, and that if you do that and extrapolate it out, 
then they would only grow by like 2.4% in contrast to the average annual rate of return on U.S. stocks, which is about 7%. So they still would be losing. No, that's right. And you think about a, a lot of uh, well-known billionaires in the news, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, you know, they don't necessarily try to maximize their returns with their investment. They invest in a lot of speculative activities, space exploration, you know, a classic example. And, you know, Musk has, you know, he set up a boring company to to uh, explore the idea of, you know, making running tubes between uh, uh, cities for transportation and the like. So they they to their great credit, they 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 put their money into very risky leading edge activities and propositions, many of which, um, you know, turn out to be flops. So uh, it's really not true that the, the, the wealthy have this much greater ability to to uh, compound their wealth than than the rest of us. Of course, he scared the crap out of everyone, on mostly on the left this week, when we're offering forty-one-plus billion dollars for Twitter. So, and then the other joke I heard is that he did offer forty-one dollars and thirty-eight cents to buy CNN Plus, but that was all oh, right. <laughs> Because they have so few subscribers. Um, right. Moran's going to talk to you about the tax gap, but I, I just wanted to to, to stay on uh, just a, a slightly different topic, and that is the the, the notion of uh, corporate taxation and the, the G7 agreement that you wrote about back in, in, in June of 2021. Where has that has that made any progress with the G7 agreeing that's, hey, we want to make sure that we have, we have 15% across the board? Where does that stand? So for over a decade now, really two decades, the OECD is the group of... Uh, uh, a rich countries, 36 or so rich countries that has a big bureaucracy based in Paris. And they've been increasingly pushing uh, for sort of global level tax rules. And they came to over 100 countries came to this big agreement last year, I think mainly because Biden, uh, a left winger was in the White House here in the United States. So they come to this big international agreement that would do two things. It would impose a global 15% uh, corporate tax and secondly, it would uh, it would there would be this big sort of agreement for the about the hundred biggest multinational companies in the world to take some of their profits and reallocate them from the headquarter countries like United States and give it to uh, kind of give this money a hundred uh, over hundred billion dollars a year to other countries where uh, where multinationals sell their products. So in other words, if if people in say Hungary use Facebook, but Facebook has no operations in Hungary. Uh, Hungary doesn't currently get any corporate tax from Facebook. The, this plan would take money from uh, the you know U.S. taxpayers basically and give it to the Hungarian government because you know the the, uh, the they use Facebook, which is an American corporation. So it's this sort of top down and good you know it's it's sort of like a top down world tax government basically. And I think it's a horrible idea. We absolutely don't need it. Uh, I wrote recently how uh, the latest data shows remarkably that uh, your listeners may know that Donald Trump cut the corporate tax rate in the United States from 35% down to 21%, a big rate cut, a, a cut in the statutory rate. But corporate tax revenues are soaring. And the most recent data shows that 2021 corporate tax revenues are up 25% over 2017 tax revenues. So the rate was cut, but the government revenues have soared. You know, why? Because you cut rates, corporations report more profits to the government, they invest more, they earn more profits. So it's a win-win when you cut ta tax rates. Hashtag Laffer Curve, anyone? Does that? There you go. <laughs> 
Uh, on that, though, I, I think I remember a line, a line in your piece about that, that it's, it really was even a year ahead of what the t- tax experts had predicted, right? They said that they w- was, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't increase until 2022, and instead it started in increasing in 2021. Is that right? Yeah, the, the, it's been a total surprise. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the official forecasts from a year ago, how much you know tax revenue would be collected in 2021, it was well down from the most recent data that's just come out in the last um, few weeks that show that um, uh, tax revenues are way up. In fact, you know the, the Bi- Biden's fed new federal budget that came out about a month ago, you know, shows this: the 2021 corporate tax revenues are way up. Which you know raises the question: Well, why does why does Biden want to propose all these economically damaging corporate tax hikes when he he and his government are already getting more corporate tax revenues than they ever dreamed of? So uh, it's it's really his Biden's tax policy is bizarre. You know, he wants to raise corporate taxes in so many different ways, but then he wants to give dozens of narrow tax breaks to his favorite corporations. You know, renewable energy corporations and and corporations doing broadband. And all, all kinds of other, uh, you know, his favorite industries he wants to give tax subsidies to, but he wants to raise the overall rate. It's really destructive and, uh, you know, works against itself. Yeah, which leads me, leads me always to the conclusion that it's not really about the money, it's about control. But let's not go there. Well, <laughs> we are against our first break. want to remind people that they, they, they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, is sponsored by some of our patrons there. You can get a shout-out at a certain level, like Blake Oliver from Earmark CPE. Check them out at earmarkcpe.com, where you can get CPE for listening to podcasts. How great is that? And we're going to make it so that this is one of those podcasts. So we'll we'll make that happen for, for our listeners. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh, oh My, my fraud. fraud. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're celebrating tax day with chris edwards the director of tax policy studies at cato and chris before we get to the tax gap i just want to ask you a couple real quick questions um the irs Commissioner Charles Rettig described auditing poor Americans who claim the EITC is the most efficient use of available IRS examination resources. You point out in your work that the EITC has a 24% fraud and error rate. Is it true that the IRS only audits the poor? <laughs> this is a, has become a talking point of the left. And, uh, you know, the truth is the EITC and other refundable credits now, there's a bunch of them, have long had these very high error and fraud rates. Um, I remember studying the EITC 20 years ago, I found that all the official reports found these high error and fraud rates. In fact, you can go back to the 80s and find government accountability office studies showing that the EITC error and fraud rate was 25 or so percent. So it is stunning that um, we've had we have this huge amount of fraud in this program, and um, we can't we, the, the government can't seem Congress can't seem to put together rules to reduce the fraud, which is really unfair. I mean, the, to people who pay the tax load, the EITC costs other taxpayers seventy billion dollars a year. This is really a spending program. So uh, yes, uh, the IRS does substantial audits on EITC uh, recipients, and it should because it's a massive spending program in the tax code that has a high amount of fraud. Right. You point out too the housing credit has a lot of air rate in it and, and all, cause it's so complex. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants the IRS in charge of filing tax returns. Sounds good to me, Chris, what could go wrong? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's a really bad idea. Um, you know, the, the way, the the, uh, the people who it's funny the, the Democrats have done a lot of complaining that the IRS is underfunded in recent years, but you know both parties add all this complexity to the tax code. But but recently it has been particularly been the Democrats and President Biden who who want to massively complicate the tax code with dozens of new credits and loopholes and exemptions and the like. Well, that makes the IRS's administration job that much harder. It it makes it easier for people to cheat. Um, it makes it people for easier for people to hide their money and take advantage of all these narrow loopholes. Um, I remember reading that you, your listeners may remember when Enron Corporation crashed uh, two decades ago. There's a lot of discussion about that, how they really bent the rules on uh, the tax code and did a lot of uh, tax avoidance and evasion. Um, I remember, you know, one of the big conclusions from auditors after that debacle was that Enron actually, they may not have even broken the law. All they did is they took dozens of dis different and disparate right. loopholes and credits and the like in the tax code and combined them in all these complicated ways. 
um, and to to reduce their their tax burden. So, you know, Congress keeps complexifying the tax code. That makes the IRS's job harder. It makes uh, individual and business tax compliance harder. It doesn't do anyone any good. It just benefits the lawyers and accountants. Right. One quick thing, you were talking to Ed about the, you know, the ideas for a minimum corporate tax. And I remember this article in The Economist last October, I think it was, they pointed out 55 big companies paid zero income tax in 2020. And one of the ideas being floated for the minimum corporate tax was they wanted to apply a tax rate to the, the gap book income that the corporations reported. Chris, this seems like a really dumb idea because wouldn't it give FASB an unelected body power over taxation? Yeah, not only, I wrote about this at the, at the, uh, on the Cato uh, blog. It is a terrible idea. This idea has been floated around for a while that people say, oh, well, we want to make sure that you know, every corporation pays some tax, so we'll tie the tax code to book or financial statement income. Really bad idea for the reason you said, but, but also the reason that if they were to do that, then politicians would be uh, pressuring and lobbying the FASB to change the rules to the benefit of the politicians rather than deciding the rules based on good accounting practice. So yeah, tying up uh, financial accounting, which is still mainly in the private sector to the government's tax accounting is a really bad idea. Awesome. All right, let's talk tax gap, Chris. You, we estimate that it's around 574 billion or two and a half percent of the country's GDP. And I guess that's just the federal tax gap. You also take into account state and local. Um, but but my first question to you is, the optimal tax gap is not zero, is it? <laughs> that's, that's a very good uh, question. Uh, you know, the, the tax gap is the amount of money that people legally owe, but they're, they're, they're not paying uh, for whatever reason. Sometimes it's not all cheating, and some of it's just confusion about the tax code. You know, as we were saying, the tax code is extremely complex. So a lot of people, frankly, it's very difficult to figure out how much they they owe. So, uh, how, you know, how, how big should the tax gap be? It shouldn't be zero because if you, you know, we, we could uh, have, a, you know, a massive overkill and, um, you know, audit every single laptop in the nation every year, have IRS agents knocking on every single household's door. Uh, we don't want to live in a country like that. We don't want to live in a country with overbearing government like that. So there is a civil liberties balance here to minimizing the amount of tax cheating that goes on. So how, is, the, is the, the current U.S. amount of tax cheating, uh, is it too much or too little? Well, one way we can find out is we can compare the United States to other countries. And there's been a number of academic studies that have found that the U.S. tax gap, in other words, the amount of tax cheating, uh, is substantially less than most countries in Europe. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, if the U.S. tax gap officially, if you include state and locals, around 3.6% 3 of GDP. Uh, you know, the average in Europe uh, is around 8 to 10% or so of, of GDP. So double what the amount of cheating is uh, in America. So, uh, you know, we have a very complicated tax code. Europe also has a very complicated tax code. Uh, maybe their culture is different. Maybe they cheat a little bit more than Americans. Americans are very law-abiding law people, actually. So I don't think that there's a crisis um, from tax cheating uh, in America. Uh, High-income people pay a massive load of tax and very high effective rates. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, I don't mind if, if to funding the IRS more with uh, ad, ad, uh, administration and better computer systems 
and more IRS employees to answer the telephones, that's fine. But increasing IRS enforcement, uh, I think, would, would really harm civil liberties and increase private sector compliance costs. And that's not where we want to go. And one of the ways economists study this tax gap is to get an idea of like, you know, I guess it used to be called the underground economy, but you call it, I think, the shadow economy. And our shadow economy is estimated to be about 7.5% of GDP. Europe's is about 23.1 and OECD countries are 15%. So obviously we must have a smaller tax gap than these. I mean, every nation's got a tax gap, right? That's right. There's some academics look at this idea of the shadow economy, which sort of is, again, it's uh, it's activities uh, uh, that, um, that that are outside of the government sort of scope. They're not necessarily uh, illegal. And uh, but the United States has a, you know, is found to have a much smaller shadow economy than most than most other high income countries. So, again, I think Americans are, are pretty law abiding people, frankly. Uh, you know, in Europe, there's often seem to be a divide between Northern Europe and Southern Europe as well, which may have to do with, you know, cultural differences. They're very law abiding in Northern Europe. Tax gaps are small. Tax cheating is small. Tax cheating is higher in the Southern European countries. I think the United States is more like the Northern European countries. Right. And, and probably the most frustrating thing I hear from in the media about this argument about funding the IRS more so we can go after the, you know, the high end cheats, so to speak, is they say, well, it's like your revenue department or marketing department in your company. Of course, you want to fund it so you can drive up the revenue. But they don't take into consideration the costs imposed on the American people of the compliance of these additional audits. Like we were talking about before we went live, that's like going to war and ignoring the collateral damage. Uh, no, I, absolutely. I mean, the classic example of this is the Biden administration proposal to to go after the, the total uh, inflows and out, outflows of every household's bank account uh, in America, which they, they thankfully have dropped now. I mean, that would be a huge compliance burden for uh, banks, big and small in America, the cost of which they put on push on to their customers, of course. But it's a civil liberties thing. It's really you know, appalling that the government would be able to dig into my uh, bank accounts and, uh, you know, demand this information from from uh, my bank. There's other examples of Biden, you know, they want to uh, they want to increase IRS enforcement. Uh, a little example that sort of went under the radar, but is, is, is a good example of what they're thinking of doing right now. If taxpayers have an underpayment, uh, either uh, purposely or mistakenly, uh, the, the IRS can impose a 20 a steep 20 percent fine on the amount you owe. Currently, there's a number of procedures the IRS uh, bureaucrats have to go through to impose this. You know, the big 20% fine is a big amount. Well, the uh, the Biden proposed to get rid of a lot of these procedural safeguards and just have low-level revenue agents being able to go bang, 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 imposing these 20% penalties on taxpayers, which would, you know, probably often be unfair because something that people often forget is that the IRS makes a massive amount of mistakes. The tax code is so complicated that the experts at the IRS often get things wrong. And so you'd, you, one of the problems with increasing IRS enforcement is that they, they hit a lot of people who haven't done anything wrong. Uh, and, with, you know, with false claims, then it'd be, it's, it's very difficult once the IRS goes after you to prove actually that you are innocent. It, it takes a while to get the wolves off of you. And so uh, we have to remember, you know, IRS uh, bureaucrats, even if they're well-meaning, they often make mistakes. And you have to consider that when thinking about the civil liberties issues here. Chris, you point out in your writing that between 60 and 90 percent of IRS audits 
are incorrect. <laughs> no, that, that's right. This is a, uh, uh, Dan Pila is a, uh, a, a tax uh, auditing uh, expert and uh, IRS defense expert up in, uh, up in Minnesota. And uh, he's got you know, decades of experience defending people against unjust IRS uh, aggressive actions. And he figures that about 60 to 90 percent of IRS audits uh, are incorrect. He says often, you, you know, that statistic is not reported because a lot of most people cave, you know, when the IRS go, comes after them, even if they're right, they, they end up caving in. Um, so, uh, you know, there's lot, one example I always give of how the IRS really got it wrong was uh, you may remember a number of years ago when Michael Jackson passed away. There's a big fight over the value of his estate under the estate tax. Uh, the IRS came out and said that Michael Jackson's estate was worth four hundred and eighty million dollars. And they went bang and tried to impose the estate tax on that. Uh, the estate fought it to their credit. Uh, the tax court uh, ended up ruling in uh, Michael Jackson's estate favor and said that the estate was only worth about $100 million. So the IRS overestimated the value of Michael Jackson's estate by five times. So that shows you, you know, a lot of this is not black and white. There's actually a lot of gray in the tax code, which is, again, one of the reasons why we don't want uh, uh, you know, the, the IRS to be excessively aggressive here, a civil liberty issue. Absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been great. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel. That's at patreon.com slash TSOE. That show is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind, hire a mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. Now a word from our sponsors. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Ron said earlier that we were celebrating Tax Day with Kato's Chris Everett. So I'm going to say we were lamenting Tax Day. I'm going to go, go with lament instead. Um, Chris is the author of the downsizinggovernment.org website, or editor, I'm sorry, of that site. Chris, I have a couple of, uh, not random, but to their tax-related questions. You mentioned, we were talking earlier about Ron, with Ron about having more IRS people who are there to answer the phone, that kind of thing. Do you think it is a potential good idea for the IRS to pr- provide to most taxpayers a pro forma that the tax return that then we then look at and make adjustments to and send back in? Or do you think the current system is best where we have to figure this all out ourselves? <laughs> I mean, the current system isn't best in, in the fact that it's way, way too complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, Republicans said they were simplifying the tax code under the, when they simplified, when they did the, the Trump tax reform, but it didn't really simplify it much. Certainly for businesses, it didn't simplify it. So no, I don't agree with that. I, I, I think the tax code ought to be sim- simplified as much as possible, a basic flat tax with no credits and exemptions and this sort of stuff. Uh, it would be easy for everyone to file. And I, and I think they should. I mean, we're, you know, this is it's the, it's the, the, the price of having a government is that by filing your taxes, you get a sense of the cost of having big government in the United States. And so I think it's important for citizens to sort of feel that cost uh, directly. I mean, there's other reforms I would do along that same line. For example, you know, you only um, you only see on your pay stub half of the 15 percent, the government's 15 percent payroll tax. Well, the other half is paid by your employer. But every economist agrees that cost lands on you, too. But every American worker pays 15 percent of their wages to the government, federal government payroll tax. They, they don't know that. We should make that more explicit and more transparent so everyone knows the cost of the government. So, well, Every time I bring this up with people, I say every entrepreneur that I have ever known, and I've worked with thousands of them in my career, when they hire somebody, they, they hire somebody at a fully burdened tax rate. Yeah, right. No, that's that's exactly right. I was I was uh, I actually uh, 15 or so years ago, I talked to a Republican congressman about this issue. He had he had introduced a, a bill in the House to to do this, to make um, the full 15 percent federal payroll tax explicit on pay stubs and on your W-2 you get um, from your employer at the end of the year. Uh, he said he got resistance from uh, the small business community because they thought it'd be an extra burden. But you know, that strikes me as sort of penny wise and pound foolish that I think would have made a dramatic difference in the debates over Social Security and Medicare if everyone knew that 15 percent of everything that they're paid is getting, um, you know, uh, taken away by the government for these vague promises in the future of covering their retirement costs. Right. And of course, Milton Friedman's lament creating the withholding system, <laughs> which yeah, I no think <laughs> we really need. We, I mean, I think we'd, 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 we'd be much better if we actually had to pay, strike, stroke a check every so often. No, that, that's right. And, you know, one of the you know what the most hated tax in America is, is property taxes. Why is that? One of the reasons is because a lot of elderly people have paid off their mortgages. And so they have they get nailed and they got to pay cash, you know, that property tax to their local government and pisses them off. And so. You, you will often see it when when local jurisdictions, they have, um, you know, their annual sort of budget open hearings and they have property tax uh, proposed increases. A lot of elderly folks show up and bitterly complain about, you know, raising the property tax rates. Why? Because people really feel that that pain of paying that tax. And so, you know, there's a general rule here for the tax code. We want it as simple and transparent as possible so people can see the full cost of government. 
And the devil's in the details on that, and I, I did have a question for you about you know what your reforms were, and you mentioned some of them. But I want to talk a little bit, if you would, about have you done any th- thinking about how it would transition? Because I mean, we, we it, it couldn't be where we just okay as of twenty twenty four we completely do it differently. There must be some kind of a transition plan in place. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think we already. I mean, the, the Trump the Trump tax reform had some flaws, but it did take um, a, quite a few steps in the direction of what was sort of the Steve Forbes flat tax in the 90s. So flatten you flatten the rate structure. The Republicans did that a little bit. Uh, lower that corporate tax rate. Uh, why? Because um, it, taxing corporate equity is double taxed. And in the global economy today, having a high corporate tax rate makes no sense. Um, and, uh, you know, getting sim- they simplified the individual code a little bit. They got rid of personal exemptions, right? And they did a few other things. Um, but uh, so, you know, they, they, they put in the state and local tax deduction gap. Um, I, I would get rid of that completely. So they took some steps in the right direction. Uh, they, they brought in um, part, part, partial capital expensing for business investment. In other words, you know, businesses are allowed to write off their machines right away um, right now, um, although they can't do that for structures. You know, under the sort of the Steve Forbes flat tax, you'd be able to write off businesses could write off all their investment right away. So there were a lot of steps in the right direction. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I guess we got to just keep pushing, pushing. And, you know, we should have a vision of where we want to go and we should we should move in that direction. And, you know, I blame Republicans for big deficits and big spending, just like the Democrats. But generally, I think most of most Republicans are on board with some sensible uh, the sensible tax reform direction that I like to go. Yes, and as Mike Munger, who's appeared on the show a couple times as well, says, debt is future taxes. That's all it is. Right, it's it's deferred tax. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, with regard to just some some stuff on on taxation, uh, how how would you tax Bitcoin? It's right now. It's real property. Is that? Do you think that's the right mechanism, or do you think that that's we've got to rethink that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Uh, honestly, I am not an expert on Bitcoin. I haven't looked into it. Uh, it's it's one of those complex areas that I'm like okay I will limit <laughs> um, you know uh, span of time in the day and that's some complex area I'm going to stay out of so yeah I, fair, I can't fair what enough what do you think Ed, about that one I, you know I I think it's just a mistake the way it is now I you know personally like to just see them say well as the taxation is theft person on this this program I would say don't tax it at all and just let it grow um, I also like long term I like the notion of the idea that that even after all the bitcoins are are mined it has a perpetual system of, of uh, self-funding inside that because instead of having, you actually get a transaction fee, which is, I think, a smart way to do it long term. You know? so, in, in general, uh, I th- you know, when, when new technologies come along, it really bothers me the way governments always want to jump in and tax it. I mean, one of the issues now, we talked about the global, this global tax deal uh, uh, earlier. I mean, one of the sort of the incentives for that is because a lot of European countries have started imposing these special taxes on big American multinationals like Facebook and Twitter and the like uh, that they don't believe are paying enough taxes in Europe. So they've imposed these special digital taxes. Well, for goodness sakes, we don't need the government inventing new taxes and trying to, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and uh, you know, putting a, blank, a wet blanket on, you know, leading edge technologies. That makes no sense at all. So just to confirm, you say you you like to see the Steve Ford flat tax. Would that is that your preference over, say, a national sales tax, assuming elimination of all other taxes? By the way, uh, yeah, I've always favored uh, the flat tax. You know, the 
conservatives and libertarian tax economists have favored the idea of consumption-based taxation, which just means, um, you know, not double taxing savings like the income tax does. Um, uh, our tax code is currently sort of halfway in between an income and consumption tax. So, for example, we, you know, we do double, we double tax corporate equity. Um, we double tax savings generally, but then we have exemptions like 401ks, eliminate one layer of tax on savings. So I want to move to a system that only taxes savings once, which is what the Steve Forbes uh, flat tax would do. And it's economically uh, equivalent to a national sales tax. Uh, I figure part, you know, one of the issues with national sales tax is that is state, that is a state government tax base. And I think something that was often underreported is that it seems to me there's no way the states would let the federal government impose a big retail sales tax on top of their, you know, their tax base. So uh, a way to a way to get around that problem is, you know, you move toward, you know, modifying the federal income tax in the direction of a consumption based system and you get it in the same place, but you wouldn't have as much resistance from state governments, it seems to me. And I'll tee you up for the uh, the last question I have. And it's an unfair question that I get. You got about two minutes to answer. Uh, uh, Let's talk a little bit about the wealth tax and why is it a horrible idea? Well, we know it's a horrible idea because even the giant welfare state governments in Europe uh, have re mainly repealed them. There used to be over a dozen countries in Europe, like Sweden, that had annual wealth taxes. You know, the wealthy people would have to, you know, uh, assess the uh, value all their assets every year, everything, houses and financial assets and all, all the real property assets. And, and, and they get whacked one or two percent or whatever it is. Uh, a year and have to pay it to the government. So even wealthy people with where their wealth was, you know, fully invested in a business, they didn't have free cash flow. They'd have to, you know, sell off some of their business or whatever to get cash to pay the government's tax. It's a terrible idea economically. Administratively, it was a nightmare. Wealthy people in Europe found all kinds of ways to get around it. So, for example, a lot of countries they, they exempted farmland because farmers are an important um, lobby group uh, in Europe, like they are here. So what rich people put all their money into farmland to, to get around the government wealth tax and the like. Anyway, in the in the end, um, starting in the 90s, governments in Europe uh, just started repealing uh, their wealth taxes. And there's only, I think, two, two, maybe three countries in Europe that still have these taxes. So uh, when Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders like are talking about that over here, it's a horrible idea. And if it was ever enacted, it would quickly get repealed anyway, because it would be completely unadministrable. Uh, the IRS has a huge problem administering the current tax code. There's no way it could handle administering a new complicated uh, wealth tax on top of everything else it does. Especially with regard to revaluation, if it go, your wealth goes up or down. like <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the stock market's down, I think, about 5% or so this year. So a lot of wealthy people, you know, lost money. But, you know, but then there's a the whole issue of in, intangible assets. I mean, I talked about Michael Jackson's estate earlier. Well, that's an intangible asset, the value of all his, all his, you know, the copyright and all the songs. Well, the, the you know, the, those valuations are not black and white. And a lot of, if, if things aren't traded in public markets, we don't really know the value of those sorts of intangible assets. We don't know the value of small businesses um, because they're, they're small, small private businesses. They're not publicly traded. So um, it, there'd be horrible valuation problems that we could never really solve under, a, under an annual wealth tax. 
All right. Well, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home. So I'd just say, like, like to thank you again, Chris, for coming on. Uh, but want to remind folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And of course, the website, thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows, including our conversation with Chris, which will post up on Monday. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSO and subscribe today please for the love of god make it stop have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul i absolutely have what if i told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast i'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download Oh Oh My My Fraud. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with chris edwards the director of tax policy studies at cato and chris during one of the breaks we talked about the pro publica and how they got a hold of was it hundreds or thousands of uh, returns from wealthy people and they issued a report, blah, blah, blah. But you also pointed out in some of your articles that 724,000 tax returns were leaked in 2016. And has anything been done about these leaks? Uh, I don't think so. The, uh, the, the leak a few years ago was the, the IRS had set up a system where you can go check, check on your tax payment online. And it turned out to be uh, a real open door for hackers. And so they, they did close that down. But more recently, as you noted, that ProPublica seems to have got a few thousand tax returns from um, the wealthiest Americans, which strikes me as probably an inside uh, IRS bureaucrats leak these out to the left wing uh, media source because he wants to, uh, uh, you know, he wants to uh, uh, 
you know, spread a, a negative message about the amount of taxes wealthy people are paying. ProPublica did. So the, the theft is terrible. It's highly legal to steal tax returns. And um, there ought to be serious investigations here. I don't think that the I think the IRS has been asked and they they claim they're investigating, but I haven't heard any you know uh, answers on on that. Um, the uh, the ProPublica they're they're uh, they keep claiming that the, that the 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 returns of wealthy people that they look at show that wealthy people don't pay high tax rates, but this really isn't true. All the official government sources like Congressional Budget Office. Joint Committee on Taxation and Biden's own Treasury produced data showing that people at the top they pay vastly higher effective tax rates uh, than than other Americans. And you know, some people at the very top, yes, they pay a somewhat lower rate because they have a lot of capital gains. Let's say if you build up a business uh, for a number uh, of years, then you retire, you sell your business. Um, you you uh, you realize this big capital gain, and your income pops to the top of the you know the the IRS uh, you know tax spectrum. You know for the one year you sell your business, but that's you know you've paid profits on your business all the way along, and there's no reason why you should necessarily pay you know uh, tax again on that on that realized gain. Some high income. Uh, Western countries don't have long tax long term capital gains at all, like Netherlands and New Zealand. Capital gain is not income, and it's never been treated the same as other the same as other income in the United States or any other OECD country. Right. Um, you also pointed out that one the IRS gets hacked one point four billion times annually. Shouldn't any increase in funding go to cybersecurity first? The, uh, you know, I, I think that this is an underreported issue, too. I mean, what federal government agency has more of our personal information than any other? And it's surely it's the IRS. I mean, our whole lifetimes of savings and income and our sources of income and our home ownership details and our health care status details, all this stuff is in this giant database in Washington. Uh, it strikes me as a, a huge and vulnerable target for hacking. And uh, there was a, a very interesting academic study I read a couple of years ago looking at this exact issue. And the, uh, and the professor opined that the only reason why there hasn't been a massive hack so far is because the computer systems are so old at the IRS. You know, they still apparently have computer systems that use uh, the COBOL uh, programming language, that this is the one of the reasons that protects them from, you know, the vulner from a vulnerability from hackers. Uh, but, but there's a huge downside, of course, to this too, that, IRS provides such poor uh, tax service to a lot of us, and it's a really inefficient bureaucracy because they have 60 different computer systems that often don't talk each talk to each other. They're really antiquated. Um, but but you, you raise a very good point that there needs to be more discussion uh, at, at a high level in Congress about this vulnerability we have here with the IRS computers. And, and Chris, you also wrote about the, you know, the backlog at the IRS. I mean, 35 million returns, you know, haven't been processed. And, and then the, the, the number of phone calls that don't get answered and, and all of that. A simplified tax code like you were talking about at the break, like the Hall Rabushka or Steve Forbes, or I remember Dick Army had one, too, that I always thought was pretty good. That would solve a lot of these problems, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the late. The, uh, the Government Accountability Office and the, uh, the Taxpayer Advocate, which is a, 
a group within the IRS has published this recent data, which is kind of horrifying, that the, the IRS is only answering about 15% of phone calls from, uh, from phone calls from, you know, confused taxpayers. So last year, 160 million Americans called the IRS to try to get advice on on how to fill out their tax return, and they couldn't even get through. It's really, it's terrible. And what is driving this? Well, all these special tax credits and breaks and the like that Congress be, keeps passing. So they they uh, they greatly increased the child tax credit in recent years, the earned income tax credit, and these other refundable tax credits. They gave out these special stimuluses or rebate checks. This is all very confusing. It's confused Americans. It's led to tens of millions uh, of errors. Uh, it consumes all of IRS time. Uh, you know, one of the ironies here is, is that they think that Democrats and some Republicans will say that the IRS doesn't go after corporations hard enough. Well, it's because all the resources are being consumed by all this incredible complexity on the individual side that we don't need. You know, we don't need any of these credits and special loopholes and deductions and the like. We just need a flat, you know, the basic idea of the Steve Forbes flat tax, you put in a basic uh, tax rate, like 20%. But you exempt people, say, below the poverty line. And then above poverty or above, say, $20,000 or $30,000 a year, you start paying a basic flat rate, uh, you know, one standard deduction, but then no other deductions or credits or anything else. Really simple. Everyone can be sure that wealthy people are paying. Um, and, you know, everyone pays the same rate. It's fair. Uh, there's sort of taxpayer solidarity, you know, here because everyone's in the same boat together. Uh, we would know the price of government, you know. And uh, so, unfortunately... Um, you know, it's, uh, we need to keep moving in that direction, but it's a long road. This tax reform road is really long. Chris, everybody wants to tax carbon because of climate change. So if we had a bipartisan, uh, agreement to get rid of all the taxes and just impose a carbon tax, so there'd be basically one federal tax, would you be for that? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be for that because, uh, well, for one, we already have a partial carbon tax, which is the federal and state gas taxes. And Americans are feeling that gas, those gas taxes now with the high price of uh, gas. Um, I'm not in favor of adding any kind of new uh, taxes to the federal government because we know that the old taxes would then, you know, they would come back. I mean, it, 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 the other issue is that I think people who favor a carbon tax, and there seems to be both liberals and conservatives who do. They have this idealized view that we'd have this pure and optimally designed uh, carbon tax that could be levied easily on corporations and be easy to collect. But we know that Congress doesn't work that way. We know that Congress creates massive loopholes and micromanagement in any tax system they put in place. So favored, they'd impose a big new carbon tax and they'd, do, they'd carve loopholes out for all the industries you know they favored. They'd impose higher rates on uh, industries they didn't favor. There'd be constant, there'd be massive lobbying because a carbon tax would hit everyone and every every industry. So, you know, it would be another big giveaway to the tax lawyers and accountants. It wouldn't help average Americans. So, I, you know, the federal government does not need uh, more revenues. The problem in Washington is it spends way too much money. We need to cut spending, balance the budget, and also make a much simpler tax code that's more equal and fair for everyone. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much. This is always an honor to talk to you. You are my tax guru on all these matters. So uh, it was a thrill to have you back. Ed, what do we have next week? Next week, Ron, we have our third interview with Dr. Jules Goddard of London Business School talking about strategy. 
Oh, awesome. I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.